Hey friends, welcome to the Make Life Matter podcast. I'm your host, Angela Donatio, Bible teacher, author, and adventure junkie. Join me each week for compelling conversations with leading voices that encourage us to ground our worth in the word instead of the narrative of the world. Together, we'll discover miracles in life's messy moments and make our lives matter no matter what. Here's this week's episode. Welcome back to the Make Life Matter podcast. I am very excited and honored about my special guest today. Most of you are very familiar with his name. George Barna is a professor at Arizona Christian University and the director of research at the Cultural Research Center at ACU. He also founded the Barna Group, a research company that for years set the standard for understanding trends in America culture. Dr. Barna has written more than 50 books, including numerous award winners and New York Times bestsellers. He is also a fellow at the Townsend Institute. He has taught at the undergraduate and graduate level and has pastored two churches. Dr. George Barna is often called the most quoted person in the Christian church today. Welcome, Dr. Barna. It's such an honor to have you on the Make Life Matter podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I was telling you earlier, my husband and I passed her right outside of Washington, D.C., and he has quoted you on many occasions, and he's just more than a little jealous that I'm sitting down to have this conversation with you today. So thank you so much. Well, it's a privilege for me to do it. Uh, you know, it's uh, a great opportunity to share insights from the research that I've been doing for so long. And, you know, hopefully these are things that help people to make better decisions so that they get closer to Christ, so that they model him better for other people in our culture. So it's a, a great thing for me to be here with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I want to dig into some of your recent research in just a couple of moments, but I want to ask a couple of questions first. How did you even become drawn toward this really what has become your life calling and that's the research that you've done? Well, you know, as I've looked back on it, one of the things that struck me was uh, I was a big fan of baseball, always have been my whole life. When I was a little kid, five, six, seven, eight years old and beyond, uh, used to collect baseball cards hmm. and my friends and I would get together and we'd look through our collections of cards and all my friends love to look at the photos of the players on the front of the cards and their batting stances or pitching or whatever. And I love the back of the cards, which had that microscopic print. It was all numbers, just rows and rows and columns of numbers because that spoke to me. Hmm. And even from a young age, I used to memorize the numbers. I used to compare the numbers. At one point, I even started recalculating the numbers to make sure that the company who produced the cards got it right. Wow. So, yeah, I think that was kind of my early infatuation with numbers, which has never died. And then later on, after, uh, you know, I, I had more education, I started managing political campaigns and one of the things that I realized, I didn't actually want to be a campaign manager after I'd done it for a few years, but I thought there are two aspects of this that I really enjoy, the polling and the speech writing based on the polling. Mm. So I went back to grad school, got some degrees in all the research techniques, and ever since then, I've been working in that arena. And it's one of those examples for me where God has a specific role for each of us to play. And if you spend the time trying to figure out what that is, then your passion can really be poured into 
what that thing is that he made you to do. And that's where you're going to get your sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, enjoyment. And I've been blessed to have that for more than 40 years now. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And what an interesting backstory. Out of curiosity, did you have a favorite baseball team that you followed or still do? Yeah, absolutely. For, uh, you know, ever since I was five, I was born in New York City. So I've always been a New York Yankee fan. Come on, that's my husband's team. So he'll still quote you now. All right. (laughs) If you had been a Red Sox fan, that might have been the end of the George Barna quotes in our church. You know, my grandson had a birthday this week and I went to his party yesterday and he had all he's a big baseball fan, too. I'm bringing him to some games this year and whatnot. And uh, he had something from the Red Sox there. We all gave him a hard time about that. Like, Absolutely. Get that garbage out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I love that backstory. And I could not agree more that when we know what we're called to do, we're in the sweet spot of the kingdom of God and making our life matter and knowing our unique calling and purpose. So thank you for sharing that. Out of curiosity, do you have a favorite book of the 50 that you have written? You know, it's kind of like asking which one is your favorite child. So, you know, you labor over them for a while and then you give birth to them and they're out there in the marketplace and you want them all to do well because you believe in all of them. Sure. Um, you know, I think there are some that maybe have had a more significant impact than others. So things like transforming children into spiritual champions yes. has been a big one. And that's very close to my heart. Another one called Maximum Faith has has been a, a big one about how does God actually transform our lives? What's the process and what can we do to align with him in that process? Uh, the power of vision was a big deal for me because as a leader, if you don't have vision figured out, you're never going to lead effectively. Um, Revolution was uh, mm-hmm. an important book for me talking about us not ever in scripture being called to go to church, but that we're called to be the church and what that means, what it looks like. So those are some, I mean, there are others too, but I mean, those are some of the ones that come to mind as being particularly significant to me. And I know revolution wasn't written last year, but what a, what a timely word for us coming out of COVID where we really did have to change our approach, paradigm shifts. What did you see coming out of this last year of, of even just that context of being the church versus doing church? What we saw was that there were millions of Christians around the country who were very disappointed that their local church was choosing to follow the government guidelines about mm. being closed. Yeah. And so they realized, you know what, we've got to figure something out here because our faith can't simply go away until the government decides it can maybe return, maybe they'll never decide that. So what's it going to look like being a Christian in this context? And it was kind of interesting to me because having had the privilege of traveling to many other countries, you go to some countries where you're not allowed to practice your faith in public. You don't have the freedom to worship God in a public setting or, or to do many of the other things that we as Christians in America take for granted. Mm. So I think it was in some ways, a good experience for the church in America, church capital C, Christians across the country to have to rethink, yeah, just how central is my faith? What am I going to do to practice it, regardless of what the government says I can or cannot do? I don't answer to the government. I answer to the God who put that government in place. So uh, in, in that sense, I think it's been interesting. And to see actually the numbers on the back end of the numbers of people who have decided to drop out of some kind of regular faith routine in their life, 
that's been eye-opening as well. Mm -hmm. Not unexpected, but the fact that it's actually happened now and we have to address that, there are a lot of uh, great opportunities now. You know, a lot of people look at this as a dark time for the church. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it as a, a a tremendous, humongous period of opportunity for us to reach out to people who are questioning things spiritually. Mm-hmm. And we have the opportunity to kind of rebuild that foundation, that spiritual foundation in the lives of millions of people. That's, that's a great time to be alive. For those who are listening and thinking, I, I don't know how this could be an opportunity. Share one way that you see where we are emerging post COVID in the United States as an opportunity for both leaders and believers. Wow. There are a lot of things that have changed in the last couple of years. One of those is the fact that people now are talking about issues like truth, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not there is truth. I mean, that's a central element of a person's worldview. Yes. And so this is a great opportunity to bring up a topic that normally wouldn't come up, but that's so significant in every decision that we make every mm-hmm. day. So it's been great to talk to people about, well, what do you think truth is? Where do you think truth comes from? How is it that you determine truth? Sure. You know, how would you know if your truth is right or Mm -hmm. not? You know, these kinds of questions, I think, are very important. Even talking with people about church, many people have said, well, I'm angry with churches. You know, they, they didn't open up. It's like, okay, well you know, is that their responsibility to make you worship? Or do you have a responsibility in terms of your relationship with God to figure out how to worship him, no matter where you are, no matter what the circumstances are? Let's talk about the nature of that relationship you've got with God. That's good. And, and so that's been great, too. I, I think the the pandemic and the lockdown, the government pressure, uh, you know, all this, uh, what are they calling it, a vaccine, even though it's not a vaccine. I mean, you know, all of that is bringing up all kinds of great conversations where if you're willing to wade into what might be controversial, Mm -hmm. what might not be so black and white for a lot of people, this is a great time to be open to those kinds of dialogues. That's that I I love that it deeply resonates with me. And like I said, as we're pastors out here and I'm a Bible teacher and author myself, not with 50 books, but with a similar mandate to help people ground their worth in the word instead of the narrative of the world. And I do think people are very hesitant to wade into these waters if they're biblically illiterate. They don't know what the Bible says. They don't know what absolute truth is. And so they're easily swayed into an alternate worldview. And so I kind of want to dive into some of the research that has recently emerged from your work. It says American worldview inventory revealed that just 6% of adults possess a biblical worldview. That number is shocking. Your study found that the most common worldview amongst Americans, 88%, might best be described as syncretism, a disparate, irreconcilable collection of beliefs and behaviors that define people's lives. And you define syncretism as a cut and paste approach to making sense of life. Can you expound on that a bit for us? And maybe for some of our listeners, that's a brand new word for them. You know, for a lot of people, what I've been discovering as we've been doing all this research on worldview, the whole concept of worldview is is new for a lot mm. of people. 
And it's one of those things that with others I've found, you start talking about worldview, biblical worldview, syncretism, secular humanism, Marxism, whatever the worldview would be, and their eyes start to roll back in their head. So it, it doesn't need to be that kind of a boring, scholarly, academic exercise, because the reality is everybody has a worldview. That's right. You need a worldview to get through the day because what your worldview is essentially is the intellectual, the emotional, the spiritual filter that you use to experience and interpret and respond to the world. In other words, it's the filter through which you make every decision that you make. Hmm. So that worldview is critical in your life. And yet it's one of those things we tend not to think about. It almost develops by default and we never give it a second thought. So what we're trying to do is to get people to actually think about their worldview. I think that's part of what Jesus' ministry was, mm. was to say, you know what, let's not take for granted that what Rome says or what the Sanhedrin says or what anybody else says is right or proper or appropriate for you, because ultimately the God of the universe made you. He loves you. He has a calling on your life. He has a plan for your life. But in order to fulfill it, you've got to think carefully about who you are, how you want to live, and how you're going to interact with all these other philosophies of life that are out there, philosophy of life being the same as a worldview. So, you know, when we talk about syncretism, what we're talking about is the fact that there are many different worldviews that a person can choose from. So there's the biblical worldview, which is simply going back to the Bible, figuring out what are the key principles and commands and ideas that are contained within there that God gives to us so that we can live a life that not only pleases and glory, uh, glorifies and honors him, but it also enables us to thrive on earth. Hmm. I mean, that's why he gave us the Bible is because he loves us. He said, all right, here's the guidebook. But that's not the only worldview that exists. There are more than a dozen others we found that Americans draw from. They're exposed to these regularly. And so sometimes they say, yeah, I kind of like that idea. And what they'll do is they'll grab onto an idea out of Marxism. And then they'll grab onto an idea they kind of like out of secular humanism. And then they'll hear something that Eastern mysticism proposes. They'll say, wow, that's kind of cool. I want that to be part of my worldview. And before you know it, they've got all of these different disparate ideas that they've bolted together into this amalgam, this mixture of ideas that become that filter through which they make their decisions. And as we looked at the worldview of people, we found out that not only do roughly nine out of 10 of them have a worldview that is this bizarre mixture of things from mm. various worldviews, but when you start tearing apart, well, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? How do you act in, the, in this kind of a situation? What we discovered is that a lot of the stuff that we believe and do is contradictory. Mm. And yet we don't really worry about it too much because one of the things that's interesting about Americans is, is that we're not really reflective thinkers. We're doers more than thinkers. And so we're not sophisticated when it comes to philosophy or even our own philosophy of life. We just try to get through the day. We're trying to feel good about ourselves. We want to produce stuff that makes us feel like, yeah, that was good. That was worthwhile. That's where I want to go. That's what I want to be known by. And so if it doesn't work, then we'll try something else the next time. But hmm. it's kind of a, an unfortunate situation that 
in our culture today, unlike I believe in the past in America, we don't take worldview seriously enough to say, you know what, when you're a child, we're going to intentionally and strategically focus on developing your worldview. Mm. Instead, what we try to do is make our kids happy. Mm. And I, I had a quote, and you almost pretty much read it, that that you had mentioned that Americans are, for better or worse, more led by their emotions than their logic. And so we're interpreting, as you said earlier, the world through our own filter and our own experiences and our own feelings rather than the Bible being the absolute standard and the filter. You mentioned briefly a couple of those other worldviews. Could you uh, unpack a couple of those that seem to be rising to the surface. And even for someone who maybe at first glance think, well, I don't really know about something like critical race theory. Maybe it's not that bad. And I'm not even sure if the Bible would have something to say about that. That really is reflective of a, an alternate worldview, an anti-biblical worldview. So what are a few of these that you studied that you feel like have risen to the surface in the last maybe 10 years among Americans? Well, certainly one of those would be something known as moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a mouthful. <laughs> a lot of people have never heard of that before. But basically, it's kind of a fake Christianity, which I think is why it's so popular in our yeah. culture today, particularly among young people, young adults in particular. Uh, what we find is that moralistic therapeutic deism would say, first of all, there is a God who made the universe. He made you. Uh, he has a purpose for you. That purpose is that you should be happy. Hmm. And in order to be happy, one of the things that he wants you to do is be good. And so it's this idea that I'm essentially a good person and God loves me. He's not involved in my life anymore because he created things. And then he kind of moved on. So I'm on my own. I'm in charge of my life. And my goal, my purpose in life ultimately is to be happy. So I don't have to worry about any kind of absolute moral truths. I just have to do what's right for me in the moment. Mm. And then as long as I'm doing it to the best of my ability and I'm a pretty good person, I'm not intentionally hurting people, it's all going to work out in the end. So, I mean, that's a simplification of, of the worldview there. But th those are kind of the high points of how it works. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in American culture all around us. You Absolutely. know, where, where people's goal is I want to be happy. I think I'm a good person. You know, God's going to let me into heaven if I do enough good things, mm. you know, that because I'm fulfilling his wish for my life. Mm. So moralistic therapeutic deism, we found, is actually the worldview that people are most likely to draw from as they're making their choices throughout the day. Mm. It's certainly not the only one. I mean, we can look at something like, uh, you know, secular humanism, mm -hmm. which talks about the importance of material things. All that matters is material substance. Mm. That's the only truth that exists. So there's no God. There's no afterlife. There's no heaven and hell. You know, just do what you can to experience the best you can in this lifetime. And that'll work out for you. We'll get right back to this week's episode. I want to help you make life matter with some free resources at AngelaDenadio.com. You'll also find my books, albums, and ways to connect. While you're there, join my online community and be the first to hear exciting updates. If you long to walk where Jesus walked and are ready for the Bible to come alive in ways you have never experienced before, journey with me and Carol McLeod to Israel in 2022. Get all the details at AngelaDenadio.com. You've got postmodernism. 
you know, which says, well, there may or may not be a God. Nobody's ever going to know. So don't get hung up on that. Mm. Just do what you can. There is no absolute moral truth. There are grand narratives around life, but you've got to determine what that is for you. Uh, You know, there's things like uh, nihilism, which says, well, nothing is real. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't exist. I don't exist. We're not really living this life. Uh, there certainly there's no God. There's no kind of external control over what happens in our lives. There's no truths. Uh, you know, you've got Eastern mysticism, which takes a whole different approach, which says basically life is cyclical. Uh, you are essentially God. And so if you can fully live up to your potential, you're going to experience the best life you possibly could. Mm. If it doesn't all work out in this life, it's okay because you're going to be reincarnated. You get to do it all over again. What you're reincarnated as has to do with how well you do in this particular life. Mm. But you're going to get another shot at it. So there are all these different worldviews. And people hear things, you know, Eastern mysticism, the thing that brings us the idea of karma. Mm-hmm. You know, and we know that most Americans today believe in karma, even though karma is not a biblical idea. It's actually a counter biblical idea. But it's these kinds of ideas that make us feel good, that mm-hmm. become popular. And so we say, well, if everybody else believes it, I probably should, too. And that tends to be more of a driving force than something like God's word, mm-hmm. because we've been beaten over the head so many times to believe it's not God's word. A bunch of old guys in a desert wrote those things, you know, and it's a book. It's become popular, Hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's true. And so we have to be prepared to always give a reason for the hope that's within us, including the scriptures, including the existence of God and the importance of Jesus Christ in our life, because none of these other worldviews are going to promote that. That's good. And none of these other worldviews can save so that's critical because they don't say they take out the fundamental issues of that we are sinners saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not works that save us. And really, although we might put new terms on it, even Paul addresses many things throughout the, the New Testament. You know, he looked at the Galatians and says, so listen, this is another gospel. I don't know who bewitched you. They dealt with Gnosticism and agnostics. And, you know, so it's it might be repackaged with a new label. But the, the word of God is the infallible, inspired word of God. And we have to know it. And we have to, like you said, be able to give a defense for it. And I don't want this to be discouraging for maybe people who are listening or even leaders. What does this mean for pastors and leaders? If, if you're like us and we're leading a church out here and I see these kind of statistics, 6% of people have a worldview. And, you know, we, we know because we're, we're talking to people. And we also have a very diverse, not only community of believers in our church, but America is diverse. We're not a culture of primarily one type of religion. It's a melting pot of cultures and religions. And so maybe it's easier in America for this to kind of all meld together. Um, I know this might feel a little bit comical, but a couple of weeks ago, I posted on my social media channels that Jesus is not Mr. Potato Head. And that's a very simplified, childlike way of describing syncretism, which is we don't get to pick and choose the 
the qualities of Jesus and make a man-made Jesus that better suits my feelings and my experiences and put this ear and that nose. And that's basically what we're doing by cut and pasting from a bunch of different world religions and having a smorgasbord rather than the true authentic gospel that can save us from our sins and can empower us to live this this life that you talked about a minute ago that's what the gospel is here for uh, so i want to know what your counsel would be for pastors and leaders who see these statistics maybe they're becoming weighted or heavy or discouraged by them how can we actually move the needle a bit and see more dependency on the bible to frame our worldview yeah it's a great question you know and and, and for me a lot of it goes back to uh, you know, that, that whole issue of what does it mean to be a leader? So mm. if you want to be a pastor, you're, you're actually called to lead. Now, we know from our research, most pastors say they're not leaders. Mm. But for those who are, this is a great time to be alive because it's a time when you can sit back and understand the times and know what to do. You know, the men of Issachar, that whole approach. Uh, so w- what does that look like? Well, it recognizes, first of all, that today in America, and I don't say this to discourage, I'll get to the good part in a minute, but the culture is affecting the church more than the church is affecting the culture. So if we want to turn that around, one of the principles we have to recognize is to turn it around. We can't keep doing what we've been doing mm. because that's what got us into the mess we're in in the first place. So this is now a day and an age where many of the things that may have worked in the past don't work today. So without compromising the gospel at all, how can we re-strategize so that we have a, a different way of approaching things? Well, one of the things that leaders do is they not only look to how do I change things immediately, but what's the long-term plan? Because if you don't have a long-term plan, whatever you plant today is going to die tomorrow. So you've got to have the long-term plan in place. Part of that long-term plan that's so important is that we be focusing on children. Mm. If I were back pastoring a church, I pastored two churches, but if I were back in the pulpit, you know, in that pastoral role today, my primary focus would be on children. Because Mm. we know that a person's worldview starts developing at 15 to 18 months of age, and is almost fully formed by the age of 13. During the teens and early to mid-20s is a time when we then refine that worldview. We figure out how to articulate it better, how to actually implement it more consistently. Mm. But it's those first 12 or 13 years where the worldview is developed. And so all of the decisions we're going to make for the rest of our life are built on what we bought into before Mm. we even get to high school. Mm. So if I'm a church leader, what I'm saying is, okay, then we've got to get to as many children as we can, and we've got to systematically introduce them to biblical truth Mm. and keep repeating it and repeating it, different stories, different approaches, different applications, but the same principles repeated after time, after time, after time, so that ultimately they get it. When you look through church history, that's basically what churches did was they take yes. those those core principles, they repeat them, they repeat them, they repeat them, and they get the people to repeat them. Mm. That's a critical thing. We've moved away from that in most of our churches. I'm impressed by the fact that when you look at many world leaders like uh, Vladimir Lenin, when you look at Mussolini, when you look at Stalin, when you look at uh, a number of others over the course of history, Mao Zedong and so forth, they all at some point have made the comment, if you give me a child till seven or some have said eight, 
uh, give them to me until they're seven or eight. I'll have them for the rest of their lives because mm-hmm. they recognize the importance of drilling that, you know, perspective into the minds and hearts of children. Mm. Churches in America don't take children seriously. Mm. We tend to use them as bait to get adults into the church. And yet we need to turn that model upside down in this day and age, I believe, and recognize, okay, families are not doing a good job at building the worldview of their children. Mm. Schools can't be trusted to do that. The media are doing it, arts and entertainment media, and they're doing they're moving them to a different place. Yeah. All these errant worldviews we're talking about is largely because the media have been promoting that for 30 plus years now. Yeah. And so the church has to take back that process and say, we're going to fight back strategically and intelligently and intentionally and consistently to make sure that young children are future generations of leaders have God's ways imprinted in their mind and their heart so that that's how they're going to live. Mm. So that to me is one of the most critical things, probably the most critical thing that we can be doing. Even today, my own private quiet time this morning was when Jesus said, listen, unless you come to me like a child, and if anyone were to lead a child astray, we'd be better that a millstone is put around their neck. So I wrote in my journal, Jesus valued children. And so you just reaffirmed that, even though we know it intellectually, but to say, listen, the world knows this. They know the lower you can go in age for marketing. And like you said in your research, arts and entertainments are the primary shaping forces. Why wouldn't we be out in front saying, listen, we have to love and value children the way Jesus did. And that's a way that we can move the needle with intention. And I appreciate your your giving us some specifics because we don't want to just feel like, the discouragement of these numbers, it can feel very heavy, but we're called we're called to such a great mandate. And I love that Paul says, listen, the gospel is not chained. The, no matter what he went through under Nero and, and terrible times of persecution, even those, as you mentioned earlier, persecuted around the world for their faith, the gospel is powerful. And so if we know it and we teach it, it has the power to save and to transform So I appreciate you reminding us of that so that we don't have, we need to be aware, but we don't have to be buried under that knowledge. We can actually use that knowledge as leverage to move us forward and see more people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, you know, the other thing that I would say, I mean, you know, so I talk about children. I think that's strategically the most important thing for us to do because it has such dramatic long-term implications, but what do we do immediately? You know, when we look at, at local churches, what are they filled with? Adults. What do we do with adults? You know, are they all a lost cause? Well, it's true. They don't normally change, but the Holy Spirit can change anybody at any time. That's right. And so we have to be prepared for that. We have to be equipping people for that. And one of the things that our research has shown is that the most effective means of facilitating transformation from God in a person's life is through mentoring or coaching relationships, a one-on-one type of relationship where somebody who is more mature than me reaches back to me and says, look, I don't know everything, but I've learned a few things and I'd be happy to share that with you. Maybe it would help you to continue to progress in, in your walk with Christ. And so being able to bring people together 
in that way and then encouraging them and giving them the kind of stuff that they need. You know, looking at the teaching that takes place and preaching that takes place in our churches, we can't be avoiding the basics. That's right. Uh, some of the you know research that we've been doing on what's being preached and taught in churches is suggesting that we're doing things that, as the Bible would say, are tickling people's ears. You know, it's nice stuff. They feel comfortable with it afterwards. That's not why we should be hearing that. What we need to hear is God's truth based on where we're at in our lives to continually be challenging us to be more Christ-like. And so in these mentoring relationships, we want to be giving all of the people engaged in those the kind of biblical substance that will be the stuff they can be talking about, holding each other accountable about, struggling with together. Hmm. That's really where true life change seems to be happening in America today, at least. It's in the context of those coaching or mentoring relationships. I love that. That's powerful. And that's something that anyone can do. If you're listening and you're thinking, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a leader, I can't necessarily you know, garner our children's ministry, but you can mentor someone and, and, you know, you don't have to know everything about the Bible. Like you said, you can be processing the sermon you recently heard. You can give someone a safe space to process their doubts and their questions, which is what Jesus did. He invited us to give him his questions. And it's not our feelings that's going to set us free. As you were just saying, it's the truth of God's word that sets us free. So if we know that and we've been set free, why wouldn't we want to bring somebody else along? So we can mentor, we can coach, and, and I appreciate those recommendations. But it helps us to know that that it's not a new fight. It's It may have some new names, but it's the fight to see people become free and to know who Jesus is and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So thank you so much, Dr. Barna. I always like to ask my guests this question, and I'm curious now, even more than I was earlier, what your answer is going to be. But I would like to know, other than Jesus, when you get to heaven, who are you most excited to meet and maybe sit down and have a conversation with? That's a tough one. Uh, you know, being a researcher, there are a whole lot of people I'd like to, you mm-hmm. know, questions to like garner information and process that. But I think maybe at the top of the list would be John Wesley. Mm. When I look back over the course of history and look at who I, I believe he was and how he operated and the challenges that he faced, but the the passion and the strength that he exuded for so many years to bring people back to Christ, uh, his innovation in ministry, his uh, passion for the word of God, his commitment to the notion of holiness. Mm. I mean, all of these things, uh, you know, I've read a lot of books about him and I just find him a fascinating person. Mm. I wish he was here in America today. You know, me he, too. He me too. But, but uh, John Wesley's probably my guy. His, he had a pretty not too shabby mother either who got yeah. up very early <laughs> in the morning. I read that she would put her apron over her head and that meant mom is praying, leave mom alone for a little bit and, and her yep. children change the world. And and you were doing the same, Dr. Barna, with your research, with your leading the cause on, on not just letting things happen by default, but by design. And we have to be intentional if we're going to see the tide turn and, And I hope this has been encouragement for our listeners to know that we can uh, make a difference and we can make our life matter and not to just arbitrarily let a worldview develop, but to be intentional and to be aware. Like you said, we all have a worldview. It's the way we interpret information, process it and respond to it. And we've got to move past just 
letting our feelings and our emotions be the leader of everything. And, and let's engage our brains with the truth of God's word and let him transform our lives. So it's been such an honor to talk with you today. And I know people want to get your books, the resources we talked about earlier, one of your 50, and uh, to know more about how they can connect with you. So where can they find uh, your resources that you offer? Yeah, there are a couple places they can go. One is culturalresearchcenter.com. And all the most recent research is put there. It's free. People can download it, read it, send it to friends. You can sign up to get alerts from us as to when the new reports come out. Every two or three weeks, we put something new out. Uh, so culturalresearchcenter.com. And, and for the books, probably the best place would be georgevarna.com. That will also have a lot of the current research there, but the books are available at heavily discounted prices at that site as well. So it'd be great to be able to help keep people informed. And I would love to invite you to just pray of our listeners, especially anyone today who has loved ones who maybe they know and recognize that their worldview is is not lining up with the truth of God's word. That can be very painful processes for us as parents and sisters and fathers and grandfathers of those that we love. For whoever is on your heart to pray for, I'd love for you to just close our time in prayer today. Lord, uh, we have a special privilege of living at this time in human history. We're not here by accident. We're here to know you, to love you, to serve you with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul. And so I pray that you will open our eyes, our heart, our mind to understand just what you're calling us to do how we can most be effective in doing those things that you call us to. We don't want to do it simply to be busy. We want to do it to bring glory and honor to you. We want to do it to advance your kingdom here on earth. And so first of all, we ask that for each of us that are participating in this today, that you would give us your wisdom. You would give us your truth. You would give us your strength to be the representative of Christ the advocate of your ways here on earth that we need to be to be most effective for you. I pray also that you would provide us with the kind of relationships that we need, wherein we can bring truth. We can bring love. We can bring compassion. We can bring mercy. We can bring all of your principles and truths into the lives of other people and see them come to you through that. Our desire here is not to build our kingdom, it's to build your kingdom. And so we pray that you will give us those opportunities and then you will guide us in those relationships to facilitate those kinds of outcomes. You tell us in the letter to John that, uh, you know, being a true disciple of yours is producing much fruit. And so we pray that you will help us to be able to partner with you in producing that kind of fruit in the lives of many people. Our nation is in trouble today, Lord, because we're turning our back on you. But it doesn't have to stay that way. And I pray that you would uh, lead us forward with strategies, with ideas, with relationships, with resources, all the things that we need, not to worry about going to church, but to be the church, to be Jesus in the lives of other people will never be Jesus, but but to have that same heart for people and their eternal outcomes, as well as what they experience here on earth, enable us to minister to people, to bless people 
we've been blessed to be a blessing. And so I pray that you would enable us to pass your blessings on to them and let us know the joy of being people here who are serving you in ways that honor you. We thank you for blessing us so greatly. We pray for our country. We pray for our families. Uh, We pray for our churches. We pray for the other uh, people we know who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Enable us to be part of the solution to their need. And uh, we pray all these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining the conversation. If you've been inspired to make life matter, share a review and subscribe at cpnshows.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Connect with me at AngelaDenadio.com, Facebook at AngelaDenadioVOV, and Instagram at AngelaDenadio. Until next week, let's make life matter.